Hi, it's Debbie. I'm so excited to tell you about our new sponsor, Uplift Desks. As a therapist, I sit a lot while I work, and if I sit all day, I feel pretty terrible by the end of the day. So I love to change things up by standing sometimes while I'm working at my computer. Whether I'm checking emails or preparing for my next podcast interview, a standing desk helps me stay alert and feel better at the end of the day. Uplift Desks has a terrific selection of standing desks and other office furniture to help you work better and live healthier. You can customize your configuration to your body and your workspace. They offer free shipping, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. And every desk purchase includes a free accessory. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Go to upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. The truth of the matter is that our system of psychological intervention, it, it never was created for black people. Um, you know, and, and when you think about it, it's only been since 1964 that racial segregation was ended in the United States. And so when you think about those interventions, many of them were created, well, you know, well before 1964. Many of them were um, created based on Eurocentric assumptions, ideas, and, you know, to be honest, like for some of our clients, like especially the clients that are from underrepresented or marginalized or oppressed populations, using certain EBPs with them is like trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. That was Jennifer Shepard Payne on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, co-author of Act Daily Journal and an upcoming book on Act for Burnout. I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the book Work, Parent, Thrive. And from coastal New England, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty, The Big Book of Act Metaphors, and the upcoming Imposter No More. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We're proud to be sponsored by Praxis, the premier provider of continuing education training for mental health professionals. Right now, Praxis is offering both virtual and in-person trainings. And for the virtual trainings, they have both live and on-demand courses. Praxis is our go-to for evidence-based CE trainings, and they're especially known for their ACT trainings. Some of the best expert peer-reviewed ACT trainers offer courses with Praxis. Check out their current offerings at praxiscet.com, or you can link to them through our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and you can get a discount on live training events if you use the code OFFTHECLOCK. Have you ever had that experience where you've gotten cornered by that person on the airplane who just wants to talk your ear off? If you're anything like me, you may feel like you need to grin and be polite, but you should never feel that way when you're talking to your mental health provider. That is where ZocDoc comes in. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments online. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual visits, or both, whatever works for you. I love ZocDoc, and I know you will too. 
So if you want to check it out, go to ZocDoc.com slash POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash P-O-T-C, ZocDoc.com slash P-O-T-C. And remember, when you support our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast. Do you want to support psychologists off the clock and take good care of your favorite pet at the same time? Whole Life Pet makes single ingredient treats, meal mixers, supplements, and hydrating snacks for both dogs and cats. Use promo code POTC to get 25% off your first order with free shipping over $50 at wholelifepet.com. My dogs, Tilly and Hazel, love the Tuscan Bistro Meal Mixer and the freeze-dried beef liver treats. The freeze-dried process is so cool. It retains up to 98% of the vitamins, minerals, and enzymes naturally occurring in food, which means no preservatives. Visit wholelifepet.com and use promo code POTC to get 25% off your first order with free shipping over $50. If you're unsure about what to try, you can fill out their short questionnaire by clicking the red Start Today button on the home page. It will ask you a few questions and make custom product recommendations for your pets. Visit wholelifepet.com and use promo code POTC to get 25% off. Hi, everyone. It's Debbie. I'm here with Yael today. We have an interview with Dr. Jennifer Shepard-Payne, who is talking to us about healing Black trauma caused by systemic racism using acceptance and commitment therapy. And I would like to just add a quick personal note about Jennifer, because I know Jennifer. We've worked together on some projects and gotten to know each other personally. And I just really admire the work that she's doing. And I think that she is a wonderful example to me of someone who is such a down-to-earth, humble, hardworking person who really embodies values and action because I think she as a Black woman in America has been through a lot and has really channeled her pain and trauma and everything that she's experienced into doing something that's really values-driven. And I think her work is really important. So I was so grateful to her for coming on the podcast. And Yael, I know you listened to the episode too and had some thoughts about it. I love the episode for for so many reasons, including that Jennifer just seems like such a wonderful human being and that this topic is such an important one. There was kind of two things that I wanted to point out. So one is that Again, we're using psychology to address something that seems like a systems issue. And on the one hand, it seems counterintuitive and almost inappropriate to say that an individual approach should be used to tackle something that is clearly a problem that exists like everywhere outside of the individual. Like racism is not an individual's fault. And yet, we can use, and Jennifer talks about this, we can use psychology to empower people and actually to empower people to change systems. It's almost like a grassroots approach. So on the one hand, it seems wrong to think about how psychology fits into handling racial injustice. On the other hand, and as she talks about um, so eloquently, I think it's a really powerful approach. Oh, I think that's such a good point. And I know that that's one that that we've talked about on the podcast before and that we both have an interest in, which is how do the two work together, right? Can we help people heal from trauma, empower them, and also charge our own batteries? All of us, you know, Black people, white people, everyone, charge our own batteries so that we can, you know, confront the problems of the world and take meaningful action. 
The second thing I wanted to mention that I just loved because it was such an aha moment and I'm maybe going to be embarrassed having shared this, but Jennifer talks about how in therapy, we often talk about, talk through metaphors. We sort of bring concepts to life and help people to really um, kind of connect with ideas through use of metaphors. And this is something that in the kind of treatment that you and Jill and I do, acceptance and commitment therapy, and that Jennifer Shepard Payne does, um, that we talk about a lot. And what she talks about uh, in her approach is using more culturally sensitive metaphors. And I will say, I haven't really thought about how important it is to be culturally sensitive in metaphors because, you know, a metaphor that is really common in acceptance and commitment therapy may not be as relatable for somebody who's Jewish as it is for somebody who's Chinese or somebody who's African-American. And so to really be thoughtful about the way that we tailor ideas in therapy to the person that we're sitting with seems so important. And, and I will admit it, you know, when it comes to metaphors, I hadn't really thought about that before she made that point. And now it's something that's sort of like top of mind and, and such a wake up call. Well, I think that actually is part of what she's doing, what Jennifer's doing that's so important is that she has personally found a lot of these practices really helpful in her own life, and they really resonated for her. And she's trying to bring it into this world of racial trauma where, you know, people need support, they need empowerment, they need healing, they need action. Sometimes these concepts aren't reaching people who could benefit from them. And so I really appreciate her work on, you know, getting this out there and the work that she's doing to, to help train people in act for racial trauma and to reach people who can benefit from it. Yeah, it was such a powerful moment when she was talking about getting training in this approach and acceptance and commitment therapy and being, you know, the only person of color in the room. And I do think, you know, it sort of begs the question of, is acceptance and commitment therapy useful for everybody? And she says, no, it is. It's just not reaching people. So what we need to do is is tailor it and also extend it in ways that are, um, you know, more effective. I was just thinking that like what she's doing is taking concepts that have been built for white people in a pretty narrow way that are good, solid concepts and really thoughtful concepts and practices. And she's finding that they're useful outside of white populations, outside of these narrowly defined populations for which they were developed. And she's tailoring them to be even more helpful and then helping to bring them to the people who actually can benefit. And I think, you know, from academic science, you can develop something and then, you know, it takes other people to courier it out into the world and to make sure that it reaches people at the heart level. And that's the work that she's doing. And I just think it's so inspirational. My hope is that listeners will find this episode really helpful. I think she's specifically, you know, as a Black woman herself, she specifically is writing about the experience of Black trauma. And I I think it's also very important for white people to take a listen as well, because I think she offers a perspective that we need to hear. And so I hope it will really be something that everyone gets something out of this episode. And please share this episode with others who might be interested in learning more about racial trauma. I'm delighted to have on our podcast today, my friend and colleague, Dr. Jennifer Shepard Payne. Dr. Payne is a research scientist and clinician for the Kennedy Krieger Institute 
in the Center for Child and Family Traumatic Stress and the Center for the Neuroscience of Social Injustice. She is also an assistant professor in the John Hopkins University School of Medicine with a primary appointment within the Department of Psychiatry, Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Dr. Payne received her doctorate from the UCLA School of Public Affairs and is a licensed clinical social worker. Her research interests include developing culturally tailored community-based depression and trauma interventions and addressing minority mental health disparities. Additionally, she is a board member of MEND, an international organization of clinicians of color who are trauma-trained to help oppressed communities. For several years, Dr. Payne has been working on culturally tailoring acceptance and commitment therapy for African-American communities experiencing racial trauma. She developed a culturally tailored ACT intervention, and she's the author of her brand new book, Out of the Fire, Healing Black Trauma Caused by Systemic Racism Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. And we'll be talking about some of the ideas from that book today. Jennifer, thanks so much for, for being here. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Well, it's our pleasure. Thanks for being here. I think that, you know, as I read through your book and just know the work that you've been doing, mostly through MEND and and some of the other work that you've been doing the last few years, I know that this is just your voice is really important, I think, in our work that we do. And I just, I'm so grateful to have you here to share some of your ideas, because I think that, you know, they need to be uh, shared far and wide. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, and and I, I appreciate that. I, I feel like it's just a part of my heart. Um, so I I feel like it's just something that I just move forward with. Um, so I appreciate it. Well, that's that's actually kind of where I want to start off our conversation today, because one of the things that I found the most powerful in your book, Jennifer, is you know, you share examples, clinical examples, you have some great metaphors, and you share some personal stories. Um, It really brought the book to life, and I think felt so powerful to read. And so I was just wondering if you could start us off by sharing a little bit about your own personal story behind how and why you are doing this work that you're so passionate about, and you wrote this particular book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, And I do have to say that I kind of, my goal is to live a life of authenticity and transparency. And I think that was also one of the goals uh, to, to relay that in the book in some way. Um, So yeah, Um, it's vulnerable, but at the same time, I'm, I'm finding that even with the clients that I work with, um, which I, I right now I work, um, at the um, Center for Child and Family Traumatic Stress. Um, and I do see a small cadre of clients there. Um, all of them have trauma issues. And and I find that, you know, just like selective disclosure, um, like very intentional disclosure really helps uh, for people, you know, that are going through uh, trauma. But yeah. um, so in terms of your question about the how and the why. Um, so I think about the word serendipity, um, serendipity where, you know, you're, you got, you get something valuable that you didn't even ask for, or you, you didn't seek it out. I think that that kind of defines how 
how the book got written. Um, and so like, um, if I think about back in spring of 2020, um, when, you know, there was so much happening in the world, there, of course, the George Floyd murder was taking place in March and we were right in the throes of COVID-19. Um, during that time, I, I, I received an email and to be honest, I don't even know who the person was that I got the email from. Um, it was somebody that was asking if I knew of any individuals who were writing books about the Black experience or about social injustice issues. Um, I don't know how the person got my email. I don't know how they knew about me. And to this day, I don't even know who sent the email because um, I don't have access to that that email address anymore. Um, I was that uh, I got I got it from a prior um, faculty position that I was at. So, um, but one thing I do remember um, is I remember writing to the editor that was that was referred to me, and I said, you know, I don't know the other people, but I know that I'm working on some um, like culturally tailoring act right now, and so maybe that's a, there's a possibility that I could write on that. And um, and that kind of started a chain of events where I went and submitted the proposal to New Harbinger, and then we moved on to write the book. And so that's the how of the book, but the why of the book is a little more complicated um, because when I think about the why, the why could be traced back to childhood, actually. I mean, the why um, has to do with, um, you know, just how I was raised, and um, I was actually raised in a pretty very stable environment, two-parent household, middle class. Um, But I had friends that lived in neighborhoods very close to me. I had um, like uh, colleagues that, you know, were in in school with me, elementary school or, or, or junior high or high school. And they were going through a lot. Like they were going through so many like financial situations, structural inequities or um, family problems. Um, And so I can think about even back then when I was like a child that I had like this heart for underrepresented populations, um, heart for, you know, some of the pain that, that, you know, some of the people around me was going through. Um, And then, when I when I grew up, I, I started moving towards these ed, these types of uh, careers and education, such as social work, um, to with the goal to help alleviate that distress or at least ad- address the pain in some kind of way. Um, and so, um, you know, this the why of the book is you know kind of happened um, a lot a lot earlier in my life, but I just didn't know how it was going to manifest until until the book came. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think that just reading more about your story and what you shared today, it just seems like that is absolutely, you know, we you, we'll talk about values in this conversation and that's a big part of ACT and a big part of your book. Yeah. Um, and it just absolutely seems like 100% mission driven from the heart. And, and I know that George Floyd's murder and the other events that happened around that time, I mean, I think that just really had such a personal impact that, you know, really was a, another driver for you. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that that was a driver for, um, and I know you mentioned MEND, um, and I know you're a part of MEND as well. And so MEND, mendminds.org, um, um, that's, that's a nonprofit organization where clinicians of color come together um, to, to learn different trauma treatments. And in turn, what they do is they ask um, that we do give a couple of pro bono services a year to um, those that need it in our communities. And the whole reason how that, that came about, MEND, the whole reason how this book came about, all of those um, kind of stemmed really from that George Floyd murder. Um, and I talk about that in the book, you know, how that affected me and how I think that that was the only time in my life that I have ever been angry for a, a whole week. Um, and I am a spiritual person, so I, it, it troubled me, you know, to have that kind of anger um, when I saw that video. Um, but I'm sure that that same anger is the same anger that many other people have felt um, and that it, it drove a lot of the, the um, different things that are going on in regards to social um, injustice right now. But um, yeah, so yeah, definitely. Right. Which probably wasn't the first time you felt that anger about similar issues, but it sounds like that particular week, it just really, you know, kind of really was so strong and was an indicator of the level of just injustice. And <laughs> Like, you know, I've had enough of this. Right. And I think that that's the way that each of us, each of us had to find out how can we deal with this anger. And for me, writing was a way of dealing with it. So um, so I I wrote a poem, and, and, and I'm sure you, I know you're familiar with the poem. Yeah, you shared it on the podcast before. We'll link to yeah. that on the show notes for today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, that poem is also like in the beginning of the book. Um, and the the poem really is just speaking to you know exactly what I felt at that time. I felt like I needed to write, and so so this writing of, of this book has actually been cathartic for me. Um, there's been several like very serious um, things that have gone on over the course of that that year or two years that um, I was writing the book. I and mean, when I say going on, um, not just in the world, but also in terms of my own family. Uh, my husband passed away during this time. There was a number of things that took place and um, and it was cathartic to write the book. Yeah. Yeah. A hopeful action in a, during a challenging time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So one of the things that you write about in the book is, of course, racial trauma. Um, your book is focused on Act for Healing Black Trauma. And you write about the experience of being Black in America and also some of the ways in which our current mental health systems fall short for Black people and aren't up to the challenge of this. Um, and I think that my personal opinion is that we as a mental health field need to take a serious look at that. And I know that this is a really big topic, probably could be its own episode. Yeah. Um, but I was just wondering if you could share some thoughts on that mental health disparity, but more than that, just like the ways in which we're not able to meet this, this really important problem. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, so 
this system that we use, you know, whether you call it the psychological system or the mental health system that we use in America, I mean, it, it has, it, it wasn't created in a vacuum. I mean, we think that it, 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 it just kind of is a stand alone, but it actually was created in a context that's influenced by the time and the societal atmosphere in which it was birthed. And so, um, I mean, the truth of the matter is that our system of psychological intervention, it, it never was created for Black people. Um, you know, and, and when you think about it, it's only been since 1964, 58 years ago, and actually like not since my birth, because I was born in 1964, um, it was only since then that racial segregation was ended in the United States. So 58 years, that's not much time. Um, and so when you think about those interventions, many of them were created, well, you know, well before 1964. Many of them were um, created based on Eurocentric assumptions, ideas. And, you know, to be honest, like for some of our clients, like especially the clients that are from underrepresented or marginalized or oppressed populations, using certain EBPs with them is like trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. And there's a lot of uh, reasons for that. One of them has to do with, um, you know, most of our EBPs are geared towards an identified patient. Um, most of them are, are individualistic in nature. Um, most of them, like, focus on that person that's right in front of you, like looking just at th- their feelings, their behaviors. Um, but there's many clients that come into therapy that are, that, are having pain issues that are not just due to individual issues. There's some clients that are coming into therapy with pain because of systemic issues that are taking place in their life, things that they have no control over or they have little control over. And and EBPs really don't address that. In fact, sometimes it's almost like blaming the victim. If, if we look at you know, oh, well, let's look at your individual problems. Let's look at, you know, what's going on with you individually when in reality um, there's other things that are causing the pain. Um, Another problem with, um, you know, our system as it is now is, you know, I mean, we know that that it's it's, it's a business, right? So um, a lot of people, like we have to bail, um, and so in order to, you know, to build, you know, we need to build in order to, to do the therapy with the client. In order to do that, we have to establish medical necessity. And so that means, like, for the most part, that um, a person has to have a clear reason for coming into treatment or a, a problem, you know, per se. And so that, that leads to, like, looking at the the ICD-9 codes, which, you know, basically looking at the, the diagnostic um, manual for mental disorders or the DSM, um, looking at them in order to pick a diagnosis, put, put it on the, um, on, on the line so that we can charge to actually see the client. Um, but then, but there's some clients out there that are just having a normal response to an abnormal environment or a normal res- response to a toxic environment. And so that really means that anybody 
would have a problem if they were in that same situation. I have a client right now, and I'm not disclosing, you know, much about that client, but that client has so many systemic issues going on at once in their life. If I was, you know, him or her, I, you know, I would have a problem in that same situation. So, so there's, so there's no diagnosis that you can really attach to that. Um, and so, you know, but a lot of times that's how we look at it in terms of mental health treatment. And then, you know, one of the, the other things that's prob- uh, problematic is the fact that, you know, a lot of our interventions are approved based on randomized control trials. And there's, there's nothing wrong necessarily with randomized control trials. But the problem for me is that they, they use primary homogeneous populations when they're doing these randomized controlled trials. And, and that's, that's what you have to do just by default is that you need to test it on a homogeneous population. But the homogeneous population ends up being primarily white, primarily English speaking, primarily heterosexual populations. Um, so how do we, you know, how do we really know that these, um, interventions are are hitting the mark or the target for the people that we serve. Yeah. I think you make a really important point here, which is that it's philosophically from, you know, its historic origins has never been, it, it's always been biased. It's always been a certain point of view that is definitely not going to fit all people, all situations, and that that tendency to put to pin a diagnosis on someone and say, "Oh, this is a problem we need to fix within you," when it so clearly is systemic, and then you think about the individual person going to a therapist, and there's, you know, a majority of therapists are white and may not be familiar with that experience. Definitely not on a personal level, but may have not even learned anything and may have some, I mean, obviously, we all have some racial biases or some areas where we may act in a way that's not going to feel accepting or welcoming or understanding of the person's experience. And I know, I don't know if you have thoughts on that on what it's like, you know, as a black person yourself to see that happen with individual clients who, who want mental health treatment and can't find a good fit. Which is on, you know, again, that's on the field. Right, right. Well, so I, I actually just did a presentation last week on, on this topic. Well, it was more geared towards clinicians of color um, and just the fact that they themselves have been, you know, overburdened by this, um, just this influx of the need for mental health care the past two or three years. And um, how can they, how can they deal with that? How can they create self-care for themselves? Um, but in in reality, less than 5% of the mental health workforce is, is Black. Um, and so that does mean that um, other, other people need to hopefully have some cultural um, sensitivity to be able to work with that population. Um, and and there's a lot of um, demand for clinicians of color at this time, and and it's just for the same reason that you just mentioned. Uh, I've I just heard just recently. I think there were two or three 
different clients that said it in 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 similar ways. But basically, what they said was, um, "I really would love to see someone who I don't have to tell my whole story to, or have to explain what what racial trauma feels like to them, uh, you know, or have to explain myself to them." Um, and so, yeah, that that is that is a difficult. Um, situation. Yeah. Well, and we as a field need to do better to fix the what's happened in the past moving forward. And I know it's not a simple, quick fix, but it's so important. Yeah. Well, in the book, one of the things I was really interested in were your thoughts on resilience. And I think often, you know, we look at resilience as a really you know, a positive thing, a really good trait. It's like, oh yeah, life can be hard and adversity happens and we need to you know, try to do our best to adapt and to be resilient. Um, but I, I, I thought it was really powerful what you wrote. Like, why do we always have to be resilient? That usually Black families and Black individuals are expected to adapt to adversity. And at some point, it's it's exhausting and unfair, you know? Um, so can you share your thoughts on resilience and, and like your own personal experience around that? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so when I first started my doctoral program at UCLA, um, I that first year that we had, you know, a number of different courses that we had to take, and I think one of them um, was a, like a, a course on epistemology, I think. And in that course, uh, at the end, you were able to choose a topic to research. Um, and I chose resilience because at that time I thought that, you know, it was a positive word. And I still, you know, I, I still understand like, like the rationale behind resilience. Um, but you know, when you think about resilience, being resilient is, is defined as being capable of withstanding shock or without permanent um, rupture without without bending too much. Um, it's it's like a, a person that's t- able to recover from or to adjust easily to misfortune or change. And so over time, there's been lots of studies out there that um, show that blacks are resilient. Um, and you know, and you know, I think that's that's fine. But, um, you know, I, I remember reading something from um, Dr. Leslie Anderson. Um, she asked a great question. She asked, why are Black families expected to continuously have to adapt to averse environments? Um, and, you know, I mean, in a way, when you think about it, in the United States, we're kind of put in a position to have to, uh, to demonstrate perseverance to um, demonstrate um, perseverance amid, amid chronic adversity. So instead of um, dealing with the systematic oppression, we are supposed to kick back and model resilience. Um, and, and yeah, that, no, I agree. I mean, when you said, you know, you thought like it, it, it seems unfair. Yes, it, it does seem unfair to like, why, why do we always have to be the strong ones? Why do we have to, why are those systems continuing to be the way they are in the first place? Um, 
And if there were other populations that had to like bump their heads against the same wall over and over, instead of saying, oh, well, you, you're, you're really doing a good job of bumping your head against that wall and, and just getting bouncing back up and, and um, not falling, you're doing a good job. But what about the wall? Is it possible to, to do something about the wall itself? Um, and so, I, you know, I feel like, you know, resilience, it feels like a double-edged sword to me because yes. Okay. Yes. We're resilient. Um, thank God we're resilient because otherwise if we weren't resilient, then, then what, what would it be? You know, we wouldn't, yeah. we wouldn't continue to be. Um, but there's a lot of people that are out there that they're, the way their resilience looks is they're surviving. They're not thriving. And so I talked to a lot of my clients about how can you get to a place of thriving? Because, I mean, yes, you know, we, we're, we are able to survive. We, we have the fortitude to survive, but we deserve at some point to thrive. Yeah. I'll read a quote from your book that I made a note of. You said, we as a nation bear responsibility to do more than encourage resilience. And I think, I think that's about moving that wall. It's like, let's move the wall out of the way. And then we don't have to focus so much on resilience as the solution to this. Exactly. Let's, let's look at the problem itself and see what we can do and, and how that, that could be so much better. If you care about prioritizing your health as much as I do, and you want to support the podcast, you've got to try Thrive Market. Their online ordering is a breeze. And right now you can get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift when you join at thrivemarket.com slash POTC. I love that Thrive Market offers brands with really high quality ingredients and sourcing methods. And I really love the convenience of having everything delivered straight to my door. No crowds, no lines, no loading groceries in and out of the car in bad weather. So join me on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Just go to thrivemarket.com slash POTC for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash POTC, thrivemarket.com slash POTC. And remember, supporting our sponsors is a great way to support us and the podcast. It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety, successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts. So let's move a little bit more into the ACT part of your work. Um, you were drawn to ACT as an, as an approach, at least in part, because it's non-pathologizing and because of the stance that it takes on human pain. You use the, the metaphor of pain being like the fire, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about why you think ACT appealed to you as, you know, enough to write a book on it and how it has potential to be helpful to African-Americans who have experienced racial trauma? Sure. Yeah. I, so the way that I learned about ACT is I actually learned about it. I mean, it was less than 10 years ago. It was like a few years ago. 
and I learned about it. I don't think it's a happenstance way, but basically what happened is I was teaching a class on intervention and evaluation for master level social work students at a university. And um, it was, it was the class that, that, that I, you know, kind of, I put together in terms of which evidence-based interventions we would talk about from week to week. And so there was a particular week of um, mindfulness-based interventions. And I invited a, a good friend and colleague of mine, um, a fellow uh, professor at the university, Dr. Regina Trama, I asked her to come and, and be a guest speaker in my class. And so she she did, you know, she talked about the different interventions that are mindfulness-based. She talked about the, um, you know, the third wave interventions, um, such as, you know, mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy, um, um, dialectical behavioral therapy. And, and then she mentioned um, ACT, which I had not heard of until she presented it to the class. And, you know, based upon what she was saying about it, and she said a little bit about it, I was interested. So I went and I took a class. It was a two-day, I think two or three-day class on um, acceptance and commitment therapy. And I was one of the very few, if, if, if not the only, um, you know, Black person in the room. But I absolutely loved it. And um, it just like, it kind of hit me immediately. I think that all of the, the interventions, and, and I think it's interesting because like, again, I've, I've, I've taught a number of different interventions that was never really, you know, like, I'm not saying committed, but I mean, I'm like, okay, whatever, CBT, yeah. You know, like, this is what it's like. And, you know, but, but, but I really just, I felt, I felt, something different with acceptance and commitment therapy. And, and I think it, do, it does have to do with, you know, the fact that, you know, it's non-pathologizing, that it um, has a, a lack of a lean towards diagnosing individuals, that you don't have to have a diagnosis to use it, that anybody can use it. In fact, I use it in my own life. Um, you know, I mean, I'm sure, and I know you do, and, you know, as you know, in our, in your daily life. So um, I think that it just was like human pain was ubiquitous and that was very calming. That was very reassuring that what, well, you know, wow, you know, pain is um, something that all of us go through. Um, and so dealing with the, you know, that or facing that, you know, that, that's beautiful. So I think that's one of the things that um, really drew me to it. But then I, I got, to be honest, I got a little bit irritated because I, I started, you know, going to more trainings and there's still, I was the, like one of the only, I would say raisins in the milk. I was pretty much, well, you know, one of the only black people in the room over and over. And I was like, what, why, how come, how come we, you know, how come, People of color don't know about this um, training. You know, how come How come we don't know as much uh, about this training as we, we could or should? And, um, and I did a training once um, 
I did like a, a training in California and it really was primarily like people of color in the room. There were a couple of uh, people that were not people of color, but, and I asked, I said, raise your hand if um, you've heard of acceptance commitment therapy. Nobody raised their hand except for about two or three people. And out of those two or three people, I think well, at least one of them was not a person of color. And so I was, I, I don't know, I guess I, I was a little um, confused about that. Um, and so because of that, I think that that also kind of like helped me to to move forward on, well, well let, me, let me get the word out a little bit more to um, people of color. And also let me look at ACT to see how it might be even better, even more relevant for for the the black community. So it it seems like you saw saw a potential for it. You saw it personally in your own life and saw how it could be applied, but it was maybe just being delivered in a way that it wasn't reaching people who could potentially benefit from some of these concepts. And I think in your book, you, for instance, you go through the core processes of ACT and tie it to the black experience in America and racial trauma. And, you know, for instance, even using metaphors that I think would be more culturally relatable, like your, you know, your values chapter is living life like it's golden and, you know, acceptance is what it is, what it is and the freedom to let go. And I think you use examples throughout your book too, that, you know, you might not see in the typical, uh, you know, kind of white person written um, act book that wouldn't maybe be quite as relatable for this specific population and this specific issue. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I felt like, and, and, and I, I, I get other people also, I think say this, but um, metaphors are very powerful, but they, they, they have to be relevant as well. Um, And so like, for instance, I, I do remember very clearly the quicksand metaphor, um, you know, the, mm-hmm. the metaphor of just going in quicksand. There's nothing wrong with that metaphor, um, but I personally have never experienced seeing quicksand. You know, I've I've never been anywhere that, you know, quicksand would exist. I, I've seen it on television. Um, I can imagine it in my mind, but it's just not really as relevant as something else might be. Yeah. And so I think like, the more relevant the metaphor, the more powerful it can be for the for the individual. One of the metaphors that you you wrote about that I have an interest in burnout. I'm writing a book on burnout, and so I was really drawn to this one. Um, was about you write about racial battle fatigue as a metaphor for pain and values sort of going hand in hand, which is an important act concept. Could you, as just an example, could you? share that idea. And also, I think it's actually relevant to what you were talking about earlier with why you were drawn to doing this particular work. So the, the, the problem with, with, you know, us, and I, and when I say us, I say us as, as um, African Americans, is that we have to have some level of guard up. Um, because the systems are not just completely safe period they're just not so 
I'll say then I have a grandson and you know, when, when these different things happen in the, in the media, when they happen in the news, um, when, when people are, are, are shot or killed, uh, because of, um, for, because of, of their race, um, I mean, it affects all of us. Like it affects all of us in the sense that we don't necessarily feel safe. Um, we have to teach our children how to act in an environment that may not always be safe. Um, and so because of that, um, it's not necessarily having a chip on our shoulders, but but we have a burden on our shoulders most of the time. Um, it's, 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 a, it's almost like, you know, if you have somebody who has PTSD and that they also always have to be on guard and you tell them, no, you can put your guard down, but that's not necessarily true. Is that you can, you know, you you can't always put your guard down because um, the the thing is, is that that there's there may always be, um, you know, um, unfortunately, it may always be either a microaggression that takes place, or um, or a systemic issue that might happen at work, you know, where or or you may get stepped over for a job that you know that maybe you should have gotten and, and it you know so there's always going to be these um potential the potential for either physical harm or or emotional harm there's always that potential that's there until the systems are corrected it's always there so yeah it's like versus a one-time traumatic event where you could almost say oh that's so rare you know let's work on getting past that because it's it's not going to happen again but this exactly. is more chronic and more, you know, it's chronic. Not, yeah, it's chronic. So 400 years, you know, of, um, of, you know, racial, um, issues in America for African-Americans. And, and so it has, it, it's not going to stop like anytime soon. So, so in other words, um, some of many of us, if not all of us, you know, we we carry something like um, in regards to our safety, slightly a, a guard, but 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 the metaphor about boxing twenty four seven really has to do with um, allowing us to give ourselves permission to let go of our guard at certain times. So because we don't have to have we have, we don't have to be on guard twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. If we if we do that day in day out then we're going to burn out um you know it's it it's it's just like chronic stress but there are ways for us to create safe spaces for ourselves where we can let go of our guard during those times so like there's some people that they they're so used to being on guard that they're on guard at home they're on guard they're on guard you know all the time and you know and so is there a way to let go of some of that? Uh, you know, not, I mean, I'm not asking them to let go of all of it. I think that that's how that's a different way of speaking than you would speak to just um, a client in general, where you know you might just encourage them to let go of all of their stress. Um, so yeah, so that's just an example. Yeah, that's a great example. So, and, and another thing you had mentioned earlier about having to be strong, right, and resilience. And I think within the ACT model, we talk a lot about being aware of narratives and 
self stories that aren't so helpful. And you give an example that I think is another really powerful one about um, about the strong black woman, strong black man narrative, which is you know out there in our here in the United States at least as, as a narrative, as an identity. And yeah. again, kind of like the resilience thing, it's one that seems empowering, but sometimes actually has a, a less helpful side. And so can you talk a little bit about those examples of, you know, the strong black woman, strong black man narrative? Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah. So there's a, a metaphor um, that's uh, exercise rather in the book that has to do with, you know, the strong black person. And I can't speak for everyone, you know, all black people. I don't, uh, that's not my goal to speak for, for all of us. However, I, I know in my own um, upbringing, like I told you, I, I was I was brought up in a in a very stable environment, and even being in a stable environment, I heard cultural um, cultural statements, you know, as I was growing up, and one of those has to do with being a strong black woman and how we need to stay strong, um, and that we will often need to take twice as much as anyone else um, in order to get the same result. And, and I've, I've experienced that to a certain degree, you know, whether it's in education or in your career or in, um, in other areas that, that there are times when it does feel that way, um, that you have to be, you know, the strong black woman or the strong black man. Um, there's like lots of cultural idioms that come up that, you know, for black men, I mean, and I think that it's, it's, it's both um, cultural and it has to do with um, gender based um, like roles or stereotypes, but um, you have to man up. You have to, you have to make sure that, you know, you, you're hard. You can't be, you know, you can't ever really, um, you know, show too much emotion except for maybe anger, um, but not not too many other emotions. Definitely not depression in the way that classic depression is shown. Um, and for me, you know, yeah, that that strong black woman, um, it runs deep. It's like, you know, you need to be a strong black woman, even, um, you know, if somebody else is not you know, they don't, they, they don't have to be, um, you know, girl, I don't have time for, um, like, I don't have time for no depression. You know, I have to keep, keep it moving. I have to keep it real. And, um, so whether, you know, whether all of these systemic things are going on in your life, that's not, that's not a reason for you to not be strong. You still need to be strong. And so, so the, the metaphor really has to do with, um, taking a look at how much you're actually holding. Um, and I'm not going to go into detail about the metaphor here, but, but basically the metaphor allows you to look at all of the weight that you're carrying. And then you can look at it and then look and then kind of almost go meta, you know, like self as context. You can, you can go meta and look at, at yourself holding all of that weight. And, and and have some compassion for yourself because anybody that had that much weight that you have, you know, should have more compassion than mm. you're showing yourself. 
Um, and so there's a, and this is not in the book, but like um, a lot of times when I talk about this to um, to other African Americans, I talk about um, there's a movie called Waiting to Exhale. Um, it's a it's a, you know older movie, um, but allowing us to have permission to exhale, allowing us yeah. to have permission to stop holding that breath because we help, we hold that breath. We hold the breath and we keep it and we just like walk with it. Um, but there is a, there is, there's a possibility to be able to not necessarily hold that breath. You do not have to be um, strong all the time. Yeah. I took a note when I was reading permission to exhale and permission to be human. Yeah. And in, I don't know if you're familiar with this, Jennifer, but um, there's a new book by Tricia Hersey that just came out. She she has the the nap ministry, and she has this oh, brand yeah. new book out called Rest as Resistance as like a, a social justice movement is to say, you know, I'm putting down the weight of the world yeah. and taking a nap, you know. And to me, what that's about when you're, you're describing this, um, just this heavy load and permission to be human is having some flexibility around that. Like, right. you know, okay, you're strong in one moment, you know, quote, strong, I'm using air quotes here, quote, strong in one minute, and you're taking a nap the next minute, you're exhaling. Yes. Um, versus kind of feeling like no matter what, I can't, I can't exhale, I can't let my guard down like that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that's where those narratives, it's like, it's really important to take a look at them. Because when it's, when we don't have that flexibility built in, it can be yeah, it can really limit things. Right. Yeah, and I think it's it's a so I think this is a wonderful way for um for African Americans to start thinking about how ca- how can we be flexible, you know, yeah. um, what things are we able to let go of, and what things do we have to to hold on to, um, yeah, yeah. Well, there are you know again several other act processes throughout your book and metaphors and exercises and examples that, again, I think are really powerful. I want to end with a couple more questions, though, more along the lines of values and actions. And one thing I think that you really emphasize in your book is a little different, again, than the kind of white Western typical model of psychology, because you really emphasize collective Black values the more communal values and the communal nature of values. And I think that, you know, often that's unemphasized in, you know, in our world that we are in with, with ACT and mental health. And so I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit about why you emphasize that in your book, the communal and collective values, and also maybe give a few examples. Um, Cause you give a lot of examples. Oh, in sure. the book. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, kind of like what what I talked about a little bit earlier, where I, w- I was talking about the fact that these these interventions that we use um, are kind of a square peg in a round hole situation to a certain degree. Um, I think one thing that would make it fit better um, definitely has to do with looking at the difference between when somebody is having an individual problem and when they're having a systemic problem, because if they're having an individual problem, then that would take certain um, actions. 
But if, if they're having a systemic problem, then there probably would be need be a need for different actions. So, um, so that's the reason why um, I kind of broke up um, values and broke up committed action into two separate parts. So, um, yes, there's individual values that we can look at. Um, I mean, you know, we know we know the various um, individual values. I mean, love or um, acceptance or um, education or you know whatever. But so there's a lot of like um, individual values that we can have. But I think that it's really important for uh, not only um, like, but for Black people not only to establish but to move forward on communal actions. And when I say communal action, that means whatever your community is, or if you don't have a community, which is like really kind of vital, you need, you need social supports in order to, 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 to reach these systemic issues. You can't, you can't do this by yourself. You can't do it as an island. So um, if you don't have social support, then how can we create social support for you? But, um, so, so that's the reason why um, pulling out a fire, you know, or poof, the poof model is a group model. It's not an individual model. Can I just jump in real quick to, because I was just reading a critique recently that within, you know, s- some more white um, therapy models, there's, there's like more emphasis on setting boundaries and almost like, oh, well, that person's toxic, cut them out of your life forever. And I mean, I know that there are some people that are like abusive and like narcissistic abuse and that kind of thing. So I get that. But the the commentary that I was reading was about like, yeah, that doesn't fly for a lot of people and a lot of communities and in certain cultures. It's like, that's not, that model is not going to resonate or work. And I, I mean, I personally, you know, as a white person, I still think that goes too far sometimes. Like, you know, community and social support is important for everyone, but I, I just haven't thought about it that way. Like, yeah, that's not going to land well for a lot of people. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, and no, I agree with you. Um, I think that when I, when I'm talking about social supports, I am primarily talking about positive social support. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, not, you know, I mean, yet, you know, it is, it is draining to have someone who's toxic in your environment. Um, but it's not as simple as cut them off. You right. know, it's not that simple either. So, but, but, but the point is, I guess there are a lot of people that are um, kind of living in silos um, and they um, are struggling really, you know, desperately. And then maybe they come to therapy and the group therapy, the format where you have 10, 10 people in the group and going through these like, um, these parts of the hexaflex um, for uh, for a few a few weeks together, um, and then really like honing in on if you don't have a community, this is your new community. Um, so this this group of people, you know, like we they begin to actually form like their own relationships amongst themselves. It, so it becomes more like instead of me being a therapist. Uh, I'm more of a facilitator and then they, they, um, they come together. So, so yeah, so, but, but, but coming together, um, 
is important. Like it's like finding out what what values do, does your community hold in the sense that you know where like what values do are we moving forward or we want to move forward as a community like whether whether it's our, our our individual communities or whether it's our families or whether it's our you know our our churches our synagogues I mean whatever however we want to define our 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 group our tribe that's how we define it um and but 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 how does the tribe look at moving forward What's most important to them? Is it freedom? Is it um, liberty? Is it um, you know, de- you know, like determination? Is it you know, what is what is what are those things that like as a group we can move forward on? Because those the group things have to do with um, systemic change. You can't change a system by yourself, and so communal committed action is is something that people together can do and, and, and you don't you have to reinvent a wheel you could you could, you don't have to say okay well my, my community is not really helpful you know I'm not able to connect with them then connect with um, an organization or an agency that's already out there doing the things that matter to you um, it could be on a national level it could be you know it doesn't have to it doesn't have to like be just as closed as the individuals that are right around you. Um, but, but, but even like if you take one step towards uh, systemic change, then that makes you feel fulfilled. Yeah. It's meaningful. It's, it's both. I think that's, that's, that's an inspiring note to end on because I think it's both helpful to you because it connects you to your values and you're taking action toward your values, which is really meaningful and hopeful and important. And also part of what you're doing is to help address this problem at the level that really matters. Right. And, and Jennifer, I, I think this is the perfect note to end on actually, okay, because yeah. I think that you have been a living demonstration of that in, you know, as you're describing the work that you've done over the last few years. And I know it's been, you know, challenging in a lot of ways for you because you've had, meanwhile, you know, your own life stressors going on. Um, but to see some examples of putting that into action. And and I know there are one of the things that you have in your book are a number of kind of ideas and resources for people for some of the ways, some more specific ways in which they can do that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think we've, we've done that. I mean, you know, you, you, you have joined men and um, a number of us have joined men um, and just decided that, you know what, this is a value to us. And so we've decided to partner together um, towards, you know, same thing, systemic changes. You know, I think that's, that's when it, it becomes powerful when, when a community comes together to, to try to make a difference about something. Absolutely. Our, our mutual friend, Corinne, who also was on, on that previous episode back, um, a ways back. And she talks about the potluck and each person finding their piece that they can bring to the potluck, whichever, whatever piece that may be for for you. Yeah, exactly. So Jennifer, on that note, we'll wrap up. And again, I'll remind people, you can find the book, Out of the Fire, Healing Black Trauma Caused by Systemic Racism Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. 
If you are interested in joining MEND for for racial trauma, um, either as a clinician of color or as an ally and supporter of MEND, we'll link to that, MEND's Mind. Um, how can people find you online, Jennifer? Do you have any any ways that people can connect with you online? Sure. Um, feel free to go to my website. It's um, www.poof-pullingoutoffire.com. That's what proof stands for, pulling out of fire. Yes. <laughs> um, yes, which is one of the metaphors in the book about, uh, you know, kind of a different way to approach the pain. Um, yeah. Well, Jennifer, um, I appreciate your book. I really appreciate the work that you're doing. And thank you again so much for being here today. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I loved being here. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jennifer. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, Psychologist Off the Clock listeners, I'm going to guess that if you are listening to this episode that you love to geek out about books in psychology. So if you are a fellow book nerd like Yale and I, and all of the people around you are tired of you talking about books, then you can join us once a month to really take a deep dive into the the books that we're going to be reading together. So if you want to join us, all you have to do is send an email with the subject heading RSVP to offtheclockpsych at gmail.com and we'll send you information for upcoming meetings of the book club. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can get more psychology tips by subscribing to our newsletter, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on social media by going to our website at offtheclockpsych.com slash merch. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com. 